You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And I'm Scott. Scott's back, you guys. Yay! I'm back. Here's a Scott. Am I back? It's You're hard. Back. To, it's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> I, uh, I I am so sorry I was gone. Uh, I had the COVID. The COVID. I had COVID twenty. It was. It was <laughs> a little rough. COVID two point Here's the thing. My boss got COVID. His wife got COVID. My wife, yes, I got married, got COVID. Uh, she wasn't my wife at the time. She actually became my wife in the middle of COVID. Amber was nice enough to marry us on our front porch. Um, wearing a Pope hat. Wearing a Pope hat that I made years yep. ago for Amber's wedding. It's a weird ch- chain of events. And... Uh, I was, I was finally getting better last Wednesday. I went, okay, I'm going to be great. I can, I can do everything again. I'm breathing fine. And I went down to my basement, tripped on a garden hose, and put my foot through a window and severed an artery. I lost a pint of blood, everyone. I, so that was fun. <laughs> I have 12 stitches. The glass went halfway through my foot. The oh, wrong, God. The wrong way. Like, like, there's no Is right, there a right way. I was going to say, there's no right way to put glass in your foot, but it was like, it went up the side of my toe and oh, then dear God. we should have a warning at the front of this. <laughs> and then, well, they know now. So it like <laughs> Too late. cut, it cut the side of my toe, but then it also went up and halfway up the arch, uh-huh. but that was all underneath the skin. I've gotten to hear this story three times now in the mm-hmm. past uh, hour and 15 minutes, and uh, yeah, goodbye dinner. <laughs> I thought I lost my toe. Ugh. You know what? When it happened, I was actually on the phone with Scott's wife, and um, I was like, well, is, is his toe still there? And she goes, I don't even know. There's so much blood. <laughs> there was oh, Lord. a lot of blood. Because I really, I thought she was exaggerating for a minute. Because I was like, "Are you serious? You can't tell if he has all of his piggies." I can't. You <laughs> couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah, I gathered that after the facts. But yeah. So just to give you an example, they're like, "Well, you know, even with the blood, you should have been able to see the toes." No. What happened was trigger warning, <clears throat> and I'm going to say Seriously, it one more time. Skip. Like 30 seconds ahead, maybe a minute. Yeah. (laughs) I was afraid to take my sandal off. I was honestly afraid to take my sandal off because I kind of thought that might be what's holding your toe in place. Oh, Scott, do we have to tell the story? Seriously. I can't. I can't. I'm going to be sick. Okay. Christy, take off the headphones for 30 seconds. But then I have to listen to this when I get ready to put it up for the fifth time. But you'll know. You'll know. And I can't skip ahead in that. I already know. You've already told me. That you should be you should be numb to it now. <laughs> it's getting worse. <laughs> All right, maybe we'll skip this part. We can keep the listeners on edge. Can can I throw out one more word? How about how about this? How about save it for if the people who really want to hear the, the the rest of it where it gets even more gruesome, t- 
say it at the very end after my stomach's had some more time to recover and just tack it on to the very end after the sources. Uh, you know what? I can do that or I can just say the word platelets. That's also an option. Yes. That yes, you took. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. How's everybody else been? I almost died. We've been better than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd almost have to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, let's let's talk about murder. Yeah. Someone who would uh, never tell a, a, a gruesome story about almost losing her toe because it never happened, A. And B, because she she was a lady. Scott's not a lady. That's okay. He's yeah. proud of it. <laughs> was Marie Lafarge. Now, uh, if you listen to Detectives by the Decade, my other podcast, on which Amber and Scott generously donate their time to give me some beautiful voice work to bring people to life, I have done this case in a two-parter back in like August, September. I figure enough time has passed and you listen to lots of true crime podcasts. You've probably forgotten it already. So we're going to go ahead and do this old-timey, crimey style, which is a whole different style from Detectives by the Decade. So yeah, if you want to hear like a, like I, I went pretty deep in it and, and have a lot of quotes that Amber and Scott are reading in the, the Detectives by the Decade episodes. So if you want to do that style and you haven't listened to it, it is there. If you want to hear more after this, but we are going to dive in and do this with all of our filthy words. So, and platelets, apparently. And platelets. <laughs> so, Marie Lafarge was born with the name Marie Fortuné Capel on her father's birthday, actually in 1816 and she ended up being quite a daddy's girl she was the first child of two for that marriage and she would end up having a little sister now supposedly she had some royal blood running through her veins of the bastard variety but still her grandmother was a baroness and she had come about due to some little you know Behind closed doors in the boudoir action between Louis Philippe, sorry, Louis Philippe II, the Duke of Orleans, and a Comtesse. So, yeah, she has some of that royal blood, even if it's not the legit kind, it's still there. You say royal blood. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is rampant birth defects and hemophilia. I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, the Habsburg lip goes all the way down to the knee. (laughs) Her father became a lieutenant colonel in the army, and so she kind of lived the army brat life, French style, moving from time to time, with her father frequently gone. And she was getting lessons, had a decent schooling, learned writing, geography, history, music, but she really tended to hate schooling and tried to avoid it. And she kind of, in her mother's eyes, became a little bit of a problem child. So when she was 12 years old, her mother took her to Saint-Denis convent without really bothering to say, hey, we're going to go to this convent, uh, by the way. (laughs) That's what this trip is all about. So, yeah, she's not getting the Mother of the Year Award anytime soon. Enjoy not coming home. (laughs) Enjoy being slapped by nuns. Uh, Her mother would visit every Sunday, but Marie actually really hated these visits. She felt like this was an exile. She had had a life that while, you know, she may not have enjoyed her lessons and such, she actually liked. And now she's being taken to this place that to her feels very 
cold and impersonal and it's just not home. So after a little while, her mother starts to feel guilty and does take her out of the convent. Now, like I said, she had that that really strong relationship with her father. They would go riding together. He taught her fencing. Uh, and uh, he liked to tell her tales of what she would refer to as heroical women. So he was bringing her up to be a strong woman. And you have to wonder what may have happened if not for the day when she did her usual routine of going to wait for him on the path to return from his daily military duties. And she would hang off of his arm the whole way back to the house but this one day in 1828, he did not come. Only his servant did. Her father had had a hunting accident. And the next morning, she and her younger sister, they, were, they went to see him. And she actually fainted because she didn't realize until that moment that this was going to be a goodbye. And he was 51. And she was only 12 years old. So that's... That's a pretty rough uh, beginning to, to lose the person who may have turned her into a completely different woman than the one she turned into. Her mother did remarry to a baron and diplomat when Marie was 14. And she ended up, at first she was pretty resentful, but eventually she got along with her stepdad. But she did develop this real sticking point about widows and widowers remarrying and second marriages. She wasn't uh, big on that. And it sort of became like a, a, like a little, little thorn in her psyche. She oh, would, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with being married a second or a third time. No, no, I agree with you. I, I think it's absolutely fine. And everybody should be able to find happiness, especially after suffering a loss. I think she still had so much loyalty to her father that she felt like her mother's marriage was disloyal. My, that was her feeling. My my first wife once asked me, uh, Scott, if I died, would you remarry? And I said, uh, yeah, I think I would. And she, she ended up looking a little bit hurt. And I said, uh, uh, would you let her wear my jewelry, my clothes? I said, uh, no, she's going to be much younger and thinner than you. <laughs> Her mom and stepdad would go on to have two more babies, one of whom died at age three. And then around age 19, Marie came down with measles. And soon after that, her mother caught it too. Marie did manage to pull through, but her mother did not. She died at the age of 38 on December 4th, 1835. So that's... That's a lot of losses in a short period of time. It's, it's a lot to deal with. Uh, her sister was sent away to live with a family friend, and so Marie ends up living with an aunt. They had been fine before. Like, she was, she was pretty okay with living with this aunt, but the relationship got kind of fraught. It was like, oh, well, now there's this kind of mother-daughter action that changes the dynamic of the relationship. And so her aunt would be like, one minute she'd be bitching at Marie about something and then Marie would cry just a little bit and then the next second the aunt was falling all over herself apologizing and it was just this cycle over and over again that she never knew what to expect from her aunt and of course this was the time when you know there might be some romances but she wasn't really 
she wasn't really doing that just yet. Uh, she first started like kind of living through her friends' romances. And whenever they had drama, she would try to help them through it. But it's, uh, it's a thing that you do in your late teens and your early 20s. And it frequently backfires. It just... It's just a bad idea to get involved in other people's shit like that. But at th it, that age, we don't have the wisdom. It's a bad idea at 40. It's a bad idea <laughs> at 50. Dare I say, the best time to get involved with other people's shit is about five minutes after your heart stops beating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Then you can Absolutely. put shit in the will and fuck with them. And <laughs> they can't do anything. The best they can do is whiz on your grave, but fool them, I'm going to be cremated. <laughs> now, we here's the thing. Her family really viewed her as a poor orphan. You know, almost nobody's going to want her. She, she's going to be left out there. She's going to be a spinster because by 22, she won't be married. And then that'll be it for her. And she'll be living, you know, in our attic for the rest of our lives. Kind of a shame because this is not an unattractive woman. She kind of looks like Penelope Cruz. Yeah, I would say that's a good comparison. She does have a little little Penelope Cruz action. She right. has fairly delicate, refined features. In the portraits of her i feel like they tend to reflect more about the artist than they do about her because there is some there are some portraits of her where her nose is drawn really like pointed and she looks really haggard and i just feel that says more about the person drawing it or the public perception of marie at the time that was influencing them so yeah that was kind of my feeling but i, I would agree with that though because um like there were some where it looked like her nose was broken yeah. And, and then there's others where she's got a perfectly straight no nose. So exactly. Yeah. It's this weird thing where I think they were definitely influenced by whatever they were hearing about her at the time. So she has this weird secret romance with somebody that it's it, all it is, is just a couple of love notes being, you know, secretly passed back and forth and some flowers being given to her and her family being like, aunts and uncles etc and her grandfather that she was close to they found out and they told her look he only wants you because he thinks because of your name and your family that you're rich as hell you know that you're just like bleeding money <laughs> like scott bleeds blood. when he's actual and like scott bleeds actual blood Yes. I love the fact that this girl's like getting love letters and flowers and they go, oh, are you happy? Let me squish that. Oh, they super squish it. They, yeah. They're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lock you in your room. She was 21. What, what the hell is that? Right? Jesus Christ. 21 years old. 21 years old in the 1800s. Yeah. Right, and that like was, you should fourteen. You should have been married. She's twenty one. Let her get married. Still, and it wasn't like a bad deal. He was an apothecary. That couldn't have been too bad. Right. Still, plenty of miles left in this vagina. Yeah, especially if they have such a bad view of her that that, that they think no one will marry her. If somebody comes along who has fairly decent prospects, you would think they'd go for it. But no, they they really ramp this up too. They messed with her head in such a horrible way. Now, granted, a lot of this comes from her memoirs 
So a lot of it is definitely flavored with her recollection of events or how she wanted to spin things. But the general idea of what happened was they sat her down and they're like, okay, we went, we talked to him and he said he would propose to you. And so we'll, we'll let it, we'll let it happen. You can marry him. And then they boomerang back around and they're like, oh, hey, look what we found. All your love letters. Look, we're going to have a family meeting and now we have some material to read out loud. And they did. The dicks. How humiliating would that be to have somebody reading private correspondence between someone you romantically incline towards out loud as like entertainment at the family meeting? It's okay, fucking so disgusting is what it is. I was going to say, I could tell you if anyone read my love letters out loud, they would be way more uncomfortable than me. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. that is true. My dearest Marie Lafarge or Nay Capelle. <laughs> <laughs> Your butthole is as fragrant as the nicest rose, and the way it puckers out whenever you fart makes my heart a flutter. I hope the notes weren't like that, but part of me hopes that they were. I don't believe they were because she, as we're going to see, was very delicate about matters sexually. Who who was the poet that used to write love letters to his girlfriend's farts? I'm just going to type in fart poet. I bet it comes up. (laughs) I bet it does. Okay, fart love poet. Uh, Strangely enough, a lot of poems about farts. James Joyce. Uh, It was James Joyce. James Joyce. I'll go ahead and read it because I think it's funnier coming from me since I was going to be like, Amber, can you believe we had two weeks without the word butthole? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Did we though? Am I really? I'm not really sorry. No. No, no. You guys were uh, lacking butthole, and I came to deliver. Scott is delivering the butthole. (laughs) In last week's Tiny, uh, I said, I think it was last week's Tiny, yeah, I said butt stuff. And then Jackson and I were listening to it, and he was like, did you get Scott's notes on this case or something? (laughs) I was like, I'm allowed to say butt stuff. I just don't normally because that's Scott's territory. (laughs) So, all right. You know, sometimes that's your territory, Scott. It's sometimes Christie's when, you know, for anniversaries and birthdays. (laughs) (laughs) So here is this letter from James Joyce to his wife, Nora in 1909. Get ready. Yeah. Get ready. (laughs) So, hold on to your butts. My sweet little whorish Nora, you had an arse full of farts that night, darling. Big fat fellows, long windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties ending in a long gush from your hole. I think I would know Nora's fart anywhere. I think I could purse ha- pick hers out in a room full of farting women. It is a rather girlish noise, not like the wet, windy fart, which I imagine fat wives have. It is sudden and dry and dirty, like what a bold girl would let off in fun in a school dormitory at night. I hope Nora will let off no end of her farts in my face so that I may know their smell also. Good night, my little farting Nora, my dirty little fuckbird. I I really feel like he's into Cleveland steamers. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe even the occasional Alabama hot pocket. Well, you know, Alabama hot pocket's nice, but a frozen uh, a frozen Columbus is really where it's at. I'm definitely going to finish reading. I'm going to go ahead and put this in the chat for you guys. This article is the eight strangest love letters from iconic artists throughout history. So we'll see if there's any more uh, farty gems in there. <laughs> but I'm not going to read it right now, obviously, because we're doing the show. But 
I, I, this is this is exactly how this is different from the treatment we gave. Uh, I gave this on Detectives by the Decade. Is there <laughs> there was nary a fart to be had? <laughs> nary just, a butthole. Is <laughs> it, nary a butthole. Is it beyond my wildest dreams that James Joyce was who Marie Lafarge was dating, and they just <laughs> they read the love letters out, and it's just. Like they get halfway through and just like just frozen terror. <laughs> it definitely uh, is is way out of the realm of possibility, considering that uh, he was born in 1882, and uh, spoiler, she was dead by then. So the ad doesn't feel like it would stop James. <laughs> so, so yeah, they sit and they read her love letters, which were probably not full of long, windy farts, and. The relationship just falls apart because she's she's so humiliated by all this. And her grandfather was like, well, it, it, it's actually because we told him that you're a poor orphan and he just noped right out of there. Mm. So, uh, she does have a few other kind of flirtation type romances, but nothing really pans out. And in 1838, her grandfather dies. So that's four big losses in just 10 years. And so she ends up going back to Paris. She'd been staying with her grandfather for a bit. She'd actually been like the head of the household for a little while and really seemed to take to it. Seemed like it was something that she was very able to do and enjoyed doing. But then as soon as he died, bam, she's back, you know, living with people who don't really want her around. So her friends and cousins are all starting to get hitched and she's, you know, she's in your 20s. You have some standard drama that happens, like when your friend asks you to keep a hold of a valuable necklace that she's going to use to satisfy her blackmailing former lover. So, you know, it, it happens to everyone three or four times this week. Right. <laughs> I have like seven cheating ladies necklaces in my house right now. It's ridiculous. I swear to God, come you guys better come get this shit. Or I'm giving it to Goodwill. <laughs> yeah. Her family does try to hook her up with a husband a couple of times, and it doesn't quite work. And then finally, they do, they do one of those sneaky, shitty things that people do when they're trying to, to hook you up with somebody, when they're trying to do a setup but not have you know, where they're like, oh, well, look who it is. It's Monsieur Charles Lafarge. I, I didn't know you were going to be at this opera. <laughs> Hello. And of course, it was all arranged in advance in order to engineer this introduction. And her thoughts on him were as follows. Monsieur Lafarge was extremely ugly. His form and features were the most businesslike conceivable. This is how they insulted people back then. Business You're businesslike. <gasps> how dare you? <sighs> <laughs> Business-like. I'm going to start business -like. telling people they're business-like when I feel like they're ugly. I'm going to start calling people fuckbirds. <laughs> well, I already did that. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So uh, the thing is, this poor orphan thing, it's not really the truth. She has a dowry of 90,000 francs. That's, that's like, a lot of money. All right. So it is damn near impossible to convert francs to US dollars in modern currency, like considering inflation and all that. So this is a completely like I did a currency conversion and then just saw what it was worth in, in her time period. Probably about half a million. 
but there's so many economic factors and other variables that that's that's and think that the frank changed so many times there were so many economic things and and different governments in France doing this and that and the other thing and in the United States I'm sure and it's impossible to figure it out so but it's 90,000 francs is probably a lot of money let's go with that probably i'm going to say i'm going to say it, it's more than a dollar Yes, yes, I would say that's a good guess. So he, Mr. Charles Lafarge, has a lot of plans for her dowry because he has a mansion and there's an ironworks that he built at the at the mansion, but he needs to fix all this up. Everything is kind of in need of an infusion of cash and he only makes about a third of her full dowry per year. So if if that's what he's making, granted... As we're going to see, he's not great with money. But if that's what he's making, like 30,000 francs a year, she comes into the marriage with three years of his work done. You know, like that's I don't I do not understand this whole poor little orphan that nobody will marry angle. I don't get it either. She's she's not unattractive. And I've walked through Walmart. Ugly people get married all the time. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very strange sort of psychological mindset that I don't get. I maybe it's just the fact that she's an orphan, but you still have your family name. I don't it's stupid. So the wedding is pretty much on, although she has next to no input in it and barely even knows it's happening. And three days before they get married, she finds out he's a widower. Uh oh. Uh oh. This penis has been in another gravy pocket. <laughs> yeah, so she is like, oh no, freaking out about this. They have to settle her down and be like, it's okay. But yeah, her mother's second marriage really did freak her out there. So they are married on August 10th, 1839. After she is married, after she's 23 years old and her aunts are like, okay, dear, let's sit down. We're going to give you the talk. The talk. Yes. And it doesn't go so well. They really freak her out. And her wording is a little bit confusing at this point because she's like, well, I was tempted to tell them, oh, I already know about all this. My friends told me. But and, and it seems like she doesn't actually get the necessary information or what they did tell her scared her so much that she never consummated her marriage. So... I mean, but if he if he was so business like, would she have wanted to? <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't seem like she really. She never seemed super enthusiastic about it. But then again, this was not a period of time where it was considered ladylike, you know, to, especially of a woman of of a little bit higher birth to be in any way enthusiastic about this. You know, over in England, we had well, lie back and think of England. You know, <laughs> so. He's so got romantic. he's got a very business like penis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they are going to go to his mansion or chateau, which is called Le Glandier. And on the way, they stop to rest. At what a was it called? Oh, just wait. It's called Le Glandier. The gland. <laughs> I'm sure it means something else, but there's more to it. I'm actually going to delight in telling you later. Yay. Uh, 
they're at a hotel and she has a room to herself with her maids and he tries to bust in on her and she's like he's really just he wants that tail guys he wants it bad and she's not having it so marriage still unconsummated they get to the gland (laughs) (laughs) there's been a little bait and switch because he's been showing her drawings of the chateau and talking it all up and meanwhile it is a decrepit heap with barely a stick of furniture it's dirty it's dusty and there's a rat problem oh no Oh no! So, also, yeah. there's a there's a Lafarge problem in that he's bankrupt. Do you see those two rats over there? Do you see what they're doing there, Marie? I want you to let me do to you what that rat is doing to the other rat over there. <laughs> Look at them! Look at them! They're very happy rats, Marie. Count the number of frowns. Zero. That's right. They're proud <laughs> members of No Frown Town. Did I did I hear a tiny little rat fart? Oh, you can do that too if you want. Fart yes, on fuck my, rats! Fuck fart, rats! Fart on my business gland. Good night, my dirty little fuck rats. I think Amber has a new name for Marcus. <laughs> I just picture Amber after this, just like grabbing Marcus, throwing him on the bed. And go, You're my fuck rat. <laughs> No, I, I can... say a lot of things to him, but most of them are mean. I think fuck rat is not a nice thing to call somebody. I don't know. I could get weird with that. <laughs> it's already weird, but you could make it weirder. Oh, you know I can. <laughs> no, you I just, can. I just picture Marcus at a bar with his hand shaking in a shot in his hand. Like just talking to the... stories of the things I've done to him. Talking to the bartender going like, and then she threw me on the bed, slapped me in the face, called me a fuck rat and farted on my chest. (laughs) I know what I'm doing tonight. (laughs) And after you're done, just go, this was all Scott's idea. (laughs) (laughs) Whispered in his ear. (laughs) Oh... After Ever's done with you, Marcus. Goes. Marcus, after Ever's done with you, you're going to have a butthole the size of a mason jar lid. So, <laughs> much like Amber and Marcus's marriage is about to be after she performs these acts tonight, the Lafarge marriage is under some strain. Only there's no sex in that one, so. <laughs> um, she's pissed off that he's bankrupt. He's pissed off that she won't do it. And, yeah, this is not a happy start here. So, she's like, I got to do something. I'm gonna do what do I should what should I do? What should I do? Oh, I'll write a letter telling him I've cheated on him. So then he'll have to let me go. And then if he doesn't, I'll just kill myself with arsenic or pretend I'm gonna kill myself. It's unclear. <laughs> but wait a minute, I've got all this arsenic. Why kill myself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this honeymoon can't be over yet because it definitely never started. So she sort of, sort of gets into either bargaining mode or procrastinating mode. It's hard to tell. She basically is is kind of giving him a carrot on a on a string, and she says, "If you get this place in order, this this house, this mansion that was supposed to be a fine home for me, then maybe you'll get some of this sweet ass." And the mansion is about four acres, and at least in the twenty first century, it is. 44 buildings. 
That's a lot of buildings. Yeah, I don't know how many they added since this time period because the very end we'll talk about the what happened to this mansion. But yeah, that's a lot of buildings. That's a lot of money to fix things up, even just the main house. And she's also really snotty about his hometown, about a lot of his family and friends because she sees herself as this cosmopolitan woman and they are these provincial just knobs, essentially. <laughs> you knob. You provincial knob. Episode title. Provincial knob. Yep. That's a good one. Not going to lie. That's a good one. <laughs> so it's, yeah, there's more friction there. There's friction with her and him. There's friction with her and his family, which. But no friction in the bedroom. Exactly. And his mother and sister live at the house, too. So that's getting a little bit awkward. Now, she gets sick for a little while. She does recover. But afterwards, uh, Lafarge is like, okay, I'm going to write a will. I don't have one right now. So I want to write one. But I need you to keep it secret from my mother and sister because I am leaving everything to you. This wouldn't have happened automatically should I die. It needs to be written out. And that includes your dowry. She wouldn't have been guaranteed to get her dowry back even if he died the next day. Yeah, yeah. So she also made a will in which she left everything that she had to him. After she did that, he pulled a little switcheroo and he wrote another will, leaving everything to his mother. Oh, that bastard. It's very businesslike of him. <laughs> it's very fuck rat of him. You're business through and through, aren't you? <laughs> so... His next idea, to he needs to raise some money. You know, he's just got her dowry and he's broke as hell. So he's like, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to hit up some contacts, yours and mine, and try to get them to give me money to get this place and the, the foundry in order. He tries to get her to come with him to Paris. And she's like, oh, honey, I have, I have so much to do here. I'm just so busy. Really, she just does not like being with him. She's actually like embarrassed by being with him in public. That's yeah, I you you can kind of understand it. He's he's not really not really been, you know, that good of a husband, has he? I mean, they're neither of them are being good spouses one way or the other. She's she's bargaining action on his part for action on her part. And but you know what? Like, imagine what, what he's feeling though, too, because like he's so excited that he's married and it's a pretty girl. And she wants nothing to do with him. Like, that has to be a major hit for his ego. But he also came into the marriage with the lie that he had anything, you know? Well, yeah. Like, I'm not saying he's a good person. But I'm, I'm saying, like, that still has to hurt a lot to be like, like, you're so unfuckable. They both, I think, got disappointed because he was expecting some action in the bedroom. And she was expecting some economic security. And both of them got screwed except he didn't get screwed so yeah i'm just you guys are still there right i'm still here i'm sorry okay i was I, pouring I, I a drink so i was on mute i'm sorry you, i did laugh at that but i was on mute because i was alcohol i'm an alcoholic it's fine I, I i want i want everyone to understand i uh even though this was a week ago that i had my accident i'm still in a in an incredible amount of pain uh right now i'm sitting with my foot up just absolutely covered in ice. And I like ice in my alcohol, uh, not on my foot. 
So like a lot of a lot of this a lot of this podcast was me going like I wonder if I hold my like nope nope that's not good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not you guys. It's sometimes I I drop, but I don't have the the screen with the Google Meet session open, so I don't know it until I've said two paragraphs. <laughs> you know, so I just had to double check when that silence hit. I was like, uh, crap. We're still here. <laughs> yeah. Somebody text Christy. Okay, good. <laughs> if if you disappear, we'll text you. <laughs> But you won't know because you have your phone off. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, the everything is still going really crappy. She's at home with her mother-in-law who strongly dislikes her and is, like, playing games with the letters. Like, she'll try to withhold his letters from Marie or she'll try to read them over Marie's shoulder. And it's just there's a lot of bullshit there. And over in Paris, Lafarge is doing... Not really a great job with the whole fundraising thing. So Marie decides to play the good little wife. And she's like, well, I'm going to cheer up my darling husband. And with the holidays coming, I should send him some sweets. So she decides she's going to send him a Christmas cake. Now, I just I looked up some Christmas cakes. And I'm going to go with it was either a lemon tart or what's called a croquembouche which is usually for weddings, but they do break it out for, for some special occasions like holidays. It's cream puffs glued together in a tree shape with caramel. And then it's, it's decorated with spun sugar and almonds. That sounds really good. There was no raisins to speak of at all. <laughs> Not a one. That sounds good. Yeah. And the pictures were beautiful. It was, it's a very lovely looking delicacy so and supposedly marie's mother-in-law also sent some cakes along with marie's but there's some questions later so charles lafarge in his hotel he tries the cakes and after pretty much just a mouthful he gets very sick he has stomach pains he's vomiting he has headaches how strange yes very 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 weird and then during this period while he's away, her mother-in-law also pulls some will shenanigans and forges a will in Marie's name that would give all of Marie's money and belongings to the Lafarge family. And so Marie's family and friends wouldn't see a dime. So there's this family really likes to play with wills. It's, it's their pastime. It's their hobby. At Christmas, they give each other fake wills. I don't even know. I feel, I feel like they're really just all trying to kill each other in, like, in secret. And they just keep rewriting the wills to be like, no, I'm going to kill that bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Marie and her mother-in-law, they do have a confrontation about this. And her mother-in-law finishes this argument off with a flourish. She's like, you, wife of my son, are pregnant. And, you and she's like, wait, how can you get pregnant without having sex? <clears throat> you can't wish that on somebody. Yeah, you're right? pregnant. <laughs> so, so quick, somebody wish your wallets are filled with hundred dollar bills. I want everybody to picture a particular meme, okay? You've all seen it. You may not know what it's called. It's the kombucha girl meme, where at first she has this look on her face like, what the hell is this? And then the next frame she has that she's tilting her head and she's like, oh, maybe. That is kind of how I picture Marie being in this, her, her trip from no to maybe yes. She's like, no, no, maybe. Mm. 
she has this idea that maybe it's an immaculate conception. Yeah. So just to I mean, add I on. Mean, she did go to like the, the nuns. So I guess she was maybe Catholic, Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I would say there's some Catholicism there. Now to add to this, the house she is living in was originally a monastery for about 500 years before the Lafarge family bought it. Its original name was Locus Beate Maria de Glandidero, which translates to Place of the Blessed Virgin Mary of the Glandier. There's the gland again. There's the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Are you saying the Virgin Mary didn't have glands? What I'm saying is it's hilarious that she's living in this house that used to be named after the Virgin Mary. And maybe it comes to her from that, that she's like, oh, well, if I'm living in a house that was named after the Virgin Mary, maybe I'm the Virgin Mary now. That does, yeah, that's a, that's a stretch. That's not how it works at all. Not so, even in the least. Yeah. Lafarge comes back home after the new year, having not done too great with the fundraising, and he's also not doing too great on the health front. He is still feeling pretty sick. He's vomiting, and so his uncle comes over, and Marie refers to him as somewhat of a doctor. And I think that you can be somewhat of a doctor as much as I am somewhat Queen Elizabeth II. You know, I fancy myself as somewhat of a doctor myself. <laughs> oh my definitely the gentleman there... the gentleman's guide to amputation by scott Mort. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor's like oh just drink or the the doctor i'm putting air quotes around that is like just drink some orange jade and you'll feel better and I mean, I guess some vitamin C maybe, but it also might be acidic, which might not help his stomach. So let's just do cocaine about it. Yeah. I mean, that is the answer to everything. That, that might have that might have worked. Feeling lethargic, down, a little nauseous. Have you tried cocaine? <laughs> yeah. Like if something's so, trying to stop your heart, I think we need to get something in you to make that heart go faster. Absolutely. There we go. We found the oh. answer to all medical <clears throat> problems. And mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's ever come up with this. Not at all. Not at all. Oh, this mansion's a mess. Don't worry. Cocaine will fix it. Trust me. <laughs> Welcome to Oregon. <laughs> so Marie made Charles some orange aid and supposedly afterwards he felt kind of better. So they actually have dinner together in his rooms. She's having some truffled fowl and he takes a couple bites. And then after that, he's sick again. He starts the vomiting again. Which truffled fowl sounds like it's kind of rich and fatty and maybe wouldn't be the best idea on a, on a stomach that needs a little more gentle food. Or he was poisoned. <laughs> Another option. Or, or a little he, bit of both. Or he was poisoned. So, yeah, it basically went like that for the next day or so. He was sick and... So late at night, she's talking to the doctor about his condition. And the doctor is like, what's with the fuck rats? Why do you have so many fuck rats scuttling around above us? And she's like, well, you know, it's the house. And he's like, well, have you done anything about the fuck rats? They are officially fuck rats in my headcanon, by the way. Um, and sounds right to me. 
Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. So she's like, well, yeah, I put out some rat's bane, but they didn't eat it. So he's like, okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. I'm going to give you some arsenic because you seem super non-murdery. Super non-murdery. Super non-murdery. So he hooks her up so that she can get some arsenic. Uh, although, keep in mind, this is after he Charles has been sick. There are some other reports that say that she got a bunch of arsenic before she sent the Christmas cake. Well, that and topped seems... it off with some raisins. Oh, you bum, son bum, of a bum, bitch! Bum. <laughs> you son of a bitch! <laughs> like I just, I just picture like if somebody would try to poison me. I take a bite out of something, you you son of a bitch, and like their blood runs cold. And fucking raisins, <laughs> and then I just die right there. What was this Although last if it was somebody, who, go ahead. If it was somebody who knew you, they would know better than to try to poison you with something with raisins in it, that's, because you're not going to anyway eat enough of that to do the job. That's true. That's true. One little nibble, I spit it out. Fuck you. He was like Rasputin. He didn't even die. He just got <laughs> angry about raisins and started punching the walls. So the doctor comes and Lafarge is getting worse and worse. His throat is inflamed. His glands are swollen. He has what's called a, quote, violent determination of blood to the head, which I think is a headache. I think that's just a headache. A violent but determination they- of blood to the head. But I think that they thought it was caused by having too much blood in your head because they were stupid. Do you think maybe it was more along the lines of like maybe his eyes, like the, uh, we call it petechia now, but like blood vessels that burst in the eyes? That's possible, yeah. I know that they did use leeches, so they were trying to get some blood out of his head. And they injected him with some alum, which Lafarge was like, this doctor is messy as hell. I have seen his dispensary. He's got his uh, cocaine mixed up with his other cocaine. Um, and uh, I, I just don't know if I trust him. I think I think it might have been vitriol by accident. You try looking vitriol up as an actual chemical compound. I have no idea what that meant. The, the only thing I can think of is the eyeball. Like the uh, fluid inside the eyeball is called the vitreous humor. Um, but yeah, it was probably like this dude was probably like trying to get like the dude's like humors intact and like trying to like get fire into his bloodstream by having him eat salamanders and fucking aligning his chakras and doing massage therapy. Well, isn't, isn't vitriol like sulfuric acid? Mm -hmm. Okay. That could be it. Let me look up vitriol. Vitriol. Oh, back in the day, it was the name of sulfuric acid. Okay. All right. There we go. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. Short Stories Short Podcast features me, Chris Garcia. And me, Christy Baxter. Talking short stories. From Asimov to Zelazny. Monroe, Murakami, Minot, Maupassant, and many, many more. New episodes land on Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. Just in time to cram a listen in on your busy weekend. So join us here for Short Story. Short Podcast. So he is suffering from some symptoms, 
And then the symptoms of uh, arsenic poisoning are as follows. Red or swollen skin. Skin changes like warts, lesions, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, abnormal heart rhythm, muscle cramps, and tingling of the fingers and toes. So it, it at least matches up with the nausea and the vomiting. Not too much matches up, but everybody's different. So they bring in another doctor who is like, well, it's just a nervous affection. The freaking idiots. <laughs> the idiots. <laughs> they didn't even have the common sense to mistake it for cholera. Well, actually, I just moved that. I just moved that in my notes, Scott. <laughs> Uh, because I was going to go to it later, but some sources, or at least one source says that somebody diagnosed it as cholera, which can be transmitted through food or water that is contaminated with a bacteria. Symptoms of that are diarrhea, vomiting, muscle cramps, sometimes you get cold skin. So it can be, I think the, the two could be easily mistaken. So there, there might've been one diagnosis of cholera, but that one didn't stand out and still nobody said arsenic yet. You know, they're all saying like nervous affection and stuff like that. So let's look at her. She doesn't look murdery at all. It's not cholera. <laughs> not murdery at all. So meanwhile, with the whole fuck rat situation, the arsenic isn't working on them. So she's like, goes to a servant. She's like, I need some more rat's bane and traps. And the servant's like, here's a bunch of arsenic. Oh, thank God. This is yeah, exactly right? what I needed. Lafarge does have a little rebound, but it doesn't last too long. The doctor at that point is like, I am in Johnstown, so I'm going to prescribe you opiates. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had the Finally. hardest time getting painkillers. Well, yeah, nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing they set me up with was 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. That's so nice of them. Yeah. So these opiates Marie is supposed to put in his drinks, and she also adds a little gum Arabic, which comes in white powder and it's supposed to bind the sweeteners in the drink. But her family sees her putting this white powder in the drinks, and they're like, uh, no. So they start playing keep away, and they're, they're, they're trying to push her away. And then they finally call another doctor who comes in, and he's like, poison. This seems like poison. And he was not just in time, because Lafarge died a few hours later. Phew. It was, yeah, it was January 13th, 18... 40. So they had been married for all of five months. Sorry, I had to count. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not a great situation. And they're keeping their eye on her really close this whole time. And afterwards, she's just in her memoirs. She's so hyper focused on what she was feeling that it actually takes a page or two after he dies for the reader to realize it because she is so, so focused that she almost treats it as an aside. She, she was quite self-absorbed, I would say. Quite self-absorbed. Yeah. You definitely get that from reading her memoirs. So you also get lots of sentences that never want to end. So, the drama starts. 
Marie goes to Lafarge's sister, thinking that they can grieve together. And his sister is like, oh, hey, didn't he get some really valuable patent in Paris? I need to kiss that. It'll make me feel better. It'll help me feel closer to him to have that really valuable patent and be able to kiss it and you not have it. That is the only thing that will help my grief. <laughs> that, that does help. I'm, there's the, the stages of grief, and they say that for every single one of them, the key is your brother's really valuable patent. Money. Money. Money really helps the grief. It does. So the accusations really start ramping up here. And at first she thinks she's pretty confident. She thinks that she'll be in the clear because at any point in time when she could have poisoned him, there was somebody else that had a hand in whatever preparation was going on. Her mother-in-law made the cakes. Her sister-in-law was there when the broth was made because they thought maybe he had gotten some poison broth too. They also thought that some flannels they'd been applying to him had also been treated with arsenic and her sister-in-law's husband had made the flannels. So she's like, oh, well, so there was always a witness around and, you know, it, it was never just me. But they save a bunch of the other stuff from when she was nursing him, like glasses of beverages. So the prosecution grabs all of that and the rat paste to try to see if there was actually arsenic in it. Which is, okay, so grabbing the rat paste and to test it is pretty smart. But the thing about the beverages that they saved is any one of them could have added arsenic to those. There's no chain of custody of evidence here, you know, like... They're just like, here, I had this glass of eggnog in my closet. I'm, I'm, I saw Marie giving it to him. I'm sure it must be poisoned. At any point in time, they could have put poison in there. Wait a minute. Yeah, and That's... also, why would you want to keep dirty dishes, especially with eggnog? That has got to smell. I was just going to say. Think there's a reason they have a rat problem. That's an <laughs> odd thing to keep in the closet, eggnog. <laughs> <laughs> there was one glass of eggnog, too, so among the beverages. So, yeah. Gross. They were kind of using it to treat the guy, like like one of the, one of the articles I read went, oh yeah, the eggnog they treat, used it as like a, for medicinal purposes, medicinal eggnog. <laughs> yeah, but it's festive, it's, so clear, clearly it can cure you. What we're going to do is we're going to give you this eggnog, and then Santa will come down and heal you like the Christ. <laughs> Religion is getting so confusing these days. It really is. So the doctors take a look at uh, Charles Lafarge's stomach. Now, at the time, there were several arsenic tests available that they could perform, but the latest and the greatest, which the big bonus of this one was that it gave you visible results that wouldn't degrade before you could actually get them into court to show to a judge and jury. That was called the Marsh test. It kind of decomposed everything. And then whatever it decomposed the chemicals onto gave a mirror-like finish. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was and then that would stay as opposed to the other tests, which could be completely gone by the time you got them to court, which was why James Marsh created the Marsh test, because he had a case he was called into, which he wasn't even a chemist at the time, and he did the test by the time he got to court. Uh, there was nothing to show the jury, so they didn't really believe him. They let the guy off, and then a couple years later, the guy confessed. <laughs> so he was like, God damn it! We need something so yeah, better. 
Yeah. So it had been around for a couple of years at this point, but it wasn't really well known. But the prosecutor knew about it, and he wanted the local doctors to perform that test on the stomach material. But they're like, oh, yeah, sure. And then behind closed doors, they're like, Marsh, what now? What's he talking about? Stan, so they're, Stan they're, Marsh, isn't that the guy who's Lord? Yeah. So they look at the stomach. They do some tests. And they do some tests also on the rat paste. They do not find arsenic in the rat paste. They do some tests on the eggnog. They do find it in the eggnog. And it's it's starting to look not so great for Marie Lafarge. She is offered opportunities to escape, she says, but she refuses them. Although, if you're trying to look... Uh, if you're trying to look like a virtuous prisoner who doesn't deserve this and like your innocence, of course you would say, oh, well, you know, people told me I could escape and they were giving me, you know, information and aid in this. And, oh, but no, I'm so innocent that I didn't. It's kind of, it, you don't know what to, to believe. Yeah, it's kind of bullshitty. Yeah. So she is charged and man, they treat prisoners a lot better when they're rich. Uh, she is allowed to take both her maid and a young lady named Emma, who was Lafarge's niece, and that was basically the only family member of his that she'd be, been able to bond with over these five months. She's allowed to take them with her. But how would you feel as the niece to be like, come to jail with me? No, that's okay. I'm good. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd rather not. <laughs> I'm I'm okay here. I, I have, is that my mother calling? Oh, geez, look at the time. I've got to be anywhere but here. <laughs> yes. So she is arrested, and she's charged with theft and murder. But theft is what we're going to talk about first, because you remember I mentioned that little drama she was going through where she had that necklace that she was safekeeping for the friend with the blackmailing ex-lover? Yes. According to said friend, Marie stole it. No. Yep. So that came up as soon as she was charged with murder. That friend was like, uh, I have a story to tell. So <laughs> everybody listen up. And they did find the necklace at Le Glandier. And she tells them the blackmail story. But the thing is, her own aunt is like, um, you guys should probably check out her jewelry that she told us she received as wedding gifts. Uh, because what you're going to find there is some of the stones from those supposed blackmail jewels. And they did. That, Dan, that seems a little suspicious to me. You know, here, if somebody, if somebody says, oh, the missing stuff that you're looking for, yeah, I know right where it is. Look right here. The first thing is, how the fuck did you know? Well, my thing is probably everybody recognize especially women of the higher class would recognize each other's jewelry so you might have this aunt and the friend that the necklace was stolen from at the same party and the aunt sees the necklace and is able to recognize later when marie has all these jewels that she's like oh i'm getting all these beautiful wedding gifts and the aunt's like i've seen that giant emerald before <laughs> you know yeah i yeah i guess then yeah, it's kind of like dentists recognizing their own work. <laughs> Women of the French upper class recognized each other's jewels. I'm it's making weird. that up, but I bet it's true. Yeah. 
Sure. Why not? I mean, I'm not even in the French upper class, but I spend enough time looking at tiaras that I bet I could spot some shit. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets two years for theft and she still has the murder trial to face in fall of 1840. Now, it's not all bad for Marie because she gets herself a fan club. She calls them My Believers. They send her love poems. They send her gifts. And of course, the gentlemen are sending her proposals of marriage. And she would actually, she would get back to them. She would reply like that. She'd be sitting in her jail cell, just like writing back to her fan club. I want a fan club. I know, right? Um, I lie. I don't. I don't. I don't want a fan club. That sounds like a lot of work. It does. That's why I'm such a a hateful, intolerable person. I just hope that people hate me, so so I don't have to write them letters. I'm literally picturing her in the the jail cell with like her feet propped up on one of her maids as she's writing these letters. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Actually, life is so hard. Yep, yep, yep. I can see it. And her believers not only wrote her letters, they made pilgrimages to Le Glandier. <sighs> and yeah, right? They treated her like almost like a, the, the, a martyr or the head of a religion. And when the trial came around, they battled over tickets for the galleries, especially the ladies-only gallery, which in this particular court was constructed specifically for this occasion. They were like, we're going to have a lot of ladies in here and we can't have them anywhere near the men or we need to be able to shuffle them out as soon as anybody says anything remotely untoward. So let's just make a spot just for the ladies because they're special and dainty and fragile. Spot just for the ladies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for this trial, you had a lot of potential witnesses because there were so many people at the house during Charles Lafarge's quote-unquote illness. Of course, you had Marie and Charles Lafarge. You had Lafarge's mother, uh, various doctors, like we said. The cook, two household servants, Marie's personal maid, that cousin, or sorry, it was Lafarge's niece, Lafarge's clerk and his wife. And then you had family and friends visiting throughout the whole illness, the sister. There's tons of people to testify to what they saw. And so her counsel starts off with her accomplishments. They go on and on about how well-read she is. She's so talented in the music room. She writes fantastic poetry. They're really going for character above all here. Now, the prosecution is like, get that mother-in-law in here. She's got some shit to say. Get that mother-in-law in here. Yeah. I love that. Ooh. Get that mother-in-law in here. If, if, there, if we're going to talk about character, the mother-in-law is going to basically negate all that. She comes in and her testimony includes some little tidbits like Marie, when Charles was away in Paris, telling her that she'd had premonitions about getting an announcement edged in black, which was how they would announce deaths. You would send somebody a card edged in black, and that meant that somebody you knew had died. She had also been surprisingly curious about... uh, how long widows were supposed to spend in mourning in the region? Because that was something that could differ from, from place to place, depending on the culture. And they were like, well, 
we do about two years here in mourning. And she's like, well, if my husband died. I said, if, not when. Uh, I, I just give it a year. That's, that's how they do it in Paris. So, uh, A year to get over a dead husband? Well, remember, mourning isn't just getting over. During the mourning period, you can only wear black. You, I, I know how they did it in England. I'm not sure if that followed through in France or not, but you weren't allowed to go to public entertainment, so you're not allowed to... You basically are like cut off from your social life except for if people visit you. Mourning women dress sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Got a thing for the I promise chicks. the all-in-black does not look like you're imagining it, Scott. Well, just let me have my little <laughs> fantasies, huh? All right, fine. They dress in all black latex. Yes. <laughs> That's what it is. So the defense actually picks this up and turns it around. And they're like, all right, she's not stupid. We told you she's not stupid. Why would she ask that if she were planning on killing him? That would be way too obvious for a bright person to do. So there's other testimony from a worker at the hotel in Paris where Charles Lafarge had stayed, who actually saw the cake when it came in and said there was just one large cake. Just the one. Just the one. Just the one. So it's weird because actually both Marie and her mother-in-law have the same testimony that there was Marie's large cake and then several smaller cakes that Charles's mother had baked. So it's like, what happened? Was there some tampering with the the package on somebody's behalf, uh, on Marie's behalf, perhaps, because she was afraid that he would only eat his mother's small cakes and she needed him to eat the big cake she sent? Um, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of questions there. It's a strange, something happened to that, that package be- when it left her hands and then before it got to his. So the tests had been run on the materials for arsenic, uh, the stomach materials and everything. And the experts were like, yeah, all these people who did these tests at this point were idiots. And you really don't want idiots running these tests because sometimes they're actually performed live in the courtroom. Like they would run the test for arsenic live in the courtroom. But the thing is, you have to be careful with the hydrogen flow because if you're not careful, you might just explode everything. Either way, that's going to be a hell of a case. That is true. So the defense, the defense calls in an expert, uh, Mathieu Orfila III. Now, a little bit about him. He was born in Menorca in 1787. He was very well educated and in many places, Valencia, Barcelona, Madrid, Paris. He's also multi-talented. In addition to being a toxicologist, he's a writer, he's a teacher, and he's a singer. He would sing at Paris salons and then use that access to network and boost his career. So very smart guy book-wise, also very savvy in his career. Jesus, real renaissance man. Yeah, he really is. In 1819, he became a professor of the Faculty of Medicine in Paris. And by 1830, he was the dean of the Faculty of Medicine. So he's, he's pretty well known at this point. Some people were calling him or some people do call him the father of forensics. And so he had really worked with the Marsh test and refined it because, you know, it's a very sensitive test. And there's also the problem of it not being entirely foolproof. Because 
arsenic is everywhere. You have arsenic in like seven different steps in the burial process that arsenic could get into the body. From the, the time they're put on the, the slab to be taken to the uh, to the doctors, to the actual embalming process sometimes involved arsenic as a preservative, to when they actually get put in the ground, there's arsenic in the ground from all the other bodies that are full of arsenic. So it's just everywhere. We're covered in arsenic. Absolutely covered in arsenic. So he did some work to make sure that that wasn't too much of a problem and that they had ways of not letting that be a point in the defense's arsenal. Yeah, so that the defense doesn't have this in their arsenal. And at this point, when Orfila is brought in, there's been four different scientific reports about whether or not there was arsenic in in the stomach materials delivered by three groups of scientists and doctors. And each of them said something different. It is ridiculous. It is If you're the jury, the judge, whoever, you've got to be so confused about this point. So you really need somebody to clear this up. And the to their credit, I guess, the defense lawyers must have really believed in Marie's innocence to bring in such a highly regarded expert. So he steps in and he does the tests and he finds arsenic in the body. But he also does other tests to ensure that the arsenic was not absorbed through burial. He tests that the dirt that was around the body, and he also tests like the thigh because there was there's a whole another thing with something called normal arsenic because they were like, are we just walking around with arsenic in our blood and our skin from nothing? We're not being poisoned. It's not in the environment. It's just there naturally. That was a whole thing, but. He basically comes out and says, it's not normal arsenic. It's not arsenic from the burial. This is arsenic from poisoning. That's at at that point, you need to feel like a real dunce of a lawyer. Yeah, you brought this guy in. Yeah. And he just proved your client guilty. Oops. Aw, dip. (laughs) Aw, dip. I haven't heard that in a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) My my favorite use of aw, dip. Last episode of The Good Place. Wait a minute. Are ghosts racist? Aw, dip. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have my favorite use of oh, snap, which we also haven't heard in a long time, was I was in an office that actually related to this case somewhat, had a mouse problem. And there was, they put traps in the drop ceiling and we're all sitting there very quiet doing our work one day and we hear the trap, you know, make its noise. And one of my coworkers just goes, Oh snap. Something just died. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. So Marie is found guilty and she is sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor. But she does get some relief on that hard labor part because remember how I said she had some royal connections in her blood? Well, you get a nice little boon when your great-grandfather's son is the king. Oh. Yeah, that's that's called nepotism. Yeah. That is, yep, yep. So he took care of the hard labor part, at least. Then she falls down to, um, she falls into ill health in the late 1840s, early 1850s. She ends up in the asylum in the hospital, and her doctors are begging the authorities to release her for her own health. Then... 
Napoleon III is president of France and he's about to be emperor. So he okays her release in June 1852. And the following November, she actually dies of tuberculosis. And she dies like with her innocence on her lips. She, she is not given up. You have to wonder about that. When somebody goes all the way to their deathbed without confessing, it's that's either self-delusion or truth or wanting to keep your reputation even after you're dead, I guess, is another thing. Yeah, like I feel like she would have wanted to keep her reputation even in death. And she was self-delusioned. This case was actually the big one for the Marsh uh, test. It put that in the public eye. And this had sort of a domino effect over the years. There was a slow decline in arsenic poisonings because it was easier to prosecute them. So people started to look at it and be like, eh, maybe I should find some cyanide. Yeah, just make it look like an accident. Or that. Now, in 1936, nearly a century after all this went down, there was some appeals court judges who were writing about the case, and they questioned the amount of arsenic in Charles Lafarge's body. Because one thing about the Marsh test is not only was it able to provide you with proof that lasted longer than a week, it also was more refined and could tell you more about the amounts of arsenic. So they were questioning whether there was actually enough arsenic to even have killed him. And their counter theory, if that wasn't the case, was appendicitis. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. So let's talk about. Do you guys have anything else on the murder? Because I have some stuff about Le, Le, the fate of Le Glandier, the gland. The gland. Chateau <laughs> gland. <laughs> so nothing more on the murder and the case and everything i got i'm good i'm good i'm good okay so the gland uh actually the monks who had owned it before the lafarge family bought it purchased it back and at the end of the 19th century there were some renovations and then le glandier became a sanitarium around 1920 And then in 1960, they converted it into a home for adults with intellectual disabilities. Over the years, it declined and was unable to meet accessibility standards. So as of July 7th, 2020, Le Glandier was for sale with a starting price of 750,000 euros. Oh, God damn it. I thought it was going to be like $750. Let's buy it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's buy a murder <coughs> chateau. Murder chateau. Let's do it. We'll put it next so, to the crime mansion. <laughs> as was, long as the rats are gone. Yeah, right. The thing is that the city of Paris actually owns it. So you couldn't just bid on it and have that be it. You had to submit a proposal that would detail what function the chateau would serve. And then the auction actually went from October 5th to October 7th, 2020, and I never looked again. So let's see if I can find out if anybody bought it. Give me a second. I'm going to sit here and watch rats fuck. Here's my money. <laughs> and there are videos of like tours of it. So that's, uh, you, you can actually see it, see the lovely chateau. 
so from from my notes, uh, I'm I'm sorry if I missed this part. So it was a sanator sanatorium for women and children until 1965. Then it became a shelter for semi-handicapped children, and then in 2005 was purchased by. I, I don't know how to say this. The Department of Carez, C-O-R-R-E-Z-E. -E. Sure. If it's French, I'll go Carez. I can't do I'll just choke on my own tongue and yeah. pretend that I said a word. Sorry, Christy. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, it, it definitely had a long and interesting life. Wait, when did I say the auction was? The 5th through the 7th. This is on the 6th. 24 hours after the start of the auction, uh, the starting price has increased from 750,000 to 890,000 euros. I love when Google Translate steps in and translates an article. Offers peeled by local authorities. Hmm. Like a banana? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, so let me see. I'm on the auction site. Final price. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. All right, I want to hear guesses. 1.4 million. Um, 1.8 million. 3 million euros. Just to wow. watch rats fuck. <laughs> <laughs> fuck rats for the win. Wow. I was doing it wrong. I just have cats fucking around here. Get some rats. I got to get some rats. Yeah, started at seven hundred and fifty thousand, and the final price was three million. <clears throat> that is amazing. I could get my fucking ass out of Johnstown if I had three million dollars. <laughs> right? Johnstown could get the hell out of Johnstown for three million dollars. I think that's true. Instead of me sitting okay. around waiting six years for the three million, this cannot be possible. But maybe, because I don't know how things work with this in France, it says in this, which is probably translated, that the property tax of this 44 buildings and 16 hectares, the property tax is 820 euros. Maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, 3 million euros. That is amazing. There is a lot to it as well. Um it's it's a very long description of it. Uh, it's got wooded areas. The buildings accommodate residents as well as offices, apartments, meeting rooms, ballroom, kitchen, restaurant, laundry room, storage, archives, garage, mechanical workshop, boiler room, infirmary. Hmm. That is something. That is. Yeah. That so is. Um, there's lots of pictures. We'll uh, we'll put that up. We'll try to put that up on the social media. So yeah, unless you guys have anything else, that is uh, Marie Lafarge. I, I, I love Marie. I I would I would eat all the cakes. <laughs> I do love I do love the uh, CBS radio crime, series Crime Classics on October fourteenth, nineteen fifty three. They broadcasted a version of the the Marie Lafarge story, and it was Marie Lafarge was played by uh, Eve McVeigh, and Charles Lafarge was played by William Conrad. Uh, there was an old TV show called Cannon. Uh, William Conrad played Cannon. He also played Fat Man in Jake and the Fat Man. But I love the I love the title of the episode. It was called The Seven-Layered Arsenic Cake of Madame Lafarge. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. I'm going to have to look that up and see if it's on YouTube. I, I'd love to listen to that. 
I, I feel like we should make an old timey crimey recipe book. Oh, that's an interesting idea. We could have the raisin cake. We could have no, a we cannot. murder cake. <laughs> raisin cake and murder cake. Trust me, one in the same. Do not and eggnog. Do, do not test me. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's gonna lose his fucking mind. <laughs> I'm gonna put raisins in every single recipe. Every single recipe. <laughs> This is this is amusing. I actually just looked up William Conrad because I was curious if I'd seen him in anything. I have to do that. Anytime I hear about or see an actor, I'm like, must must IMDb mm -hmm. immediately. But I'm actually on his Wikipedia page. And it says that when he was in canon from 1971 to 76, he weighed 230 pounds, but then ballooned to 260 pounds or more. And there's a quote from him. I heard that Weight Watchers had banned its members from watching the show, but it turned out to be a gag. The publicist for Weight Watchers did call and suggest that I have lunch with their president. I said, sure, if I could pick the restaurant. <laughs> nice. there, there was an episode of Canon that kind of broke my heart as a kid. I was 10 years old. I was watching Canon. And Canon, of course, was a cop who solved crimes. And they had like this drawing that somebody had put up on the, uh, like, the murder scene. And it went, Mort. You know, it had Mort written on there and a bunch of other things written on there. And he goes, and the guy looking at Cannon goes, uh, Mort, do you think that could be like a, maybe a last name? He goes, not, not very likely. He's like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> oh, you bastard, Cannon. I get irritated when anybody names a dog Baxter on a TV show. I actually had a cat named Baxter. <laughs> you bastard. I did. <laughs> I did. All right. So I'm going to do my usual spiel here, and then we'll dive into what we're doing this weekend. Scott is recovering blood. <laughs> yeah. If you want more old-timey crimey, come over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash old-timey crimey, where we have our bonus episodes up every week. And we also are doing a mega bonus where we do a little something different. Last time we did the 70s. Next time, I guess you're going to have to join to find out. So we'll be posting that uh, next week, the mega sode as well. And yeah, come over there and check out what we have. And then also, if you're not the long-term relationship type, you can still get a shout out on the show. PayPal us at oldtimeycrimey.gmail.com. Even a buck on the nightstand, you'll get a shout out, baby. We love it. So don't forget to review us and all your favorite podcasts. It helps everybody out so much and is something that we can do for our favorite podcasts and for each other on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. The more visibility you get on the podcast charts, the more visibility you get altogether. So it really helps new listeners to find us. And that is very helpful. Uh, there's also our merch, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. You can come and check out our merch. There are every there's everything from t-shirts to shower curtains to laptop sleeves and more. And if you do get to the page and it says something is not safe for work, it's just because there's a knife on it or the word sex on it. And I was just going along with Redbubble's thing. So go ahead and just, you know, click that you allow that. It's okay. It's not actually anything bad. I was just trying to follow the rules. Damn it. So 
And uh, I have a couple of other shows that I'm on, Detectives by the Decade, we already mentioned. Check that out. We're in season two and having fun. And then a uh, short story, short podcast with friend of the show, Chris Garcia. We have been having such a fun time over there, you guys. Um, we talked this, oh, I don't know. I, I he's, he's two weeks ahead as far as recording, so I have no idea even. I'm like, what did I do last week? What did I do the week before? I don't know what's coming out this week. It's a surprise. So we've been having a lot of fun talking about short stories over there. And Chris is always very trenchant in his commentary and also very excitable. So it's fun. And there's also our social media. We'll have some stuff up related to the case this week. We are old timey crimey on Facebook. Instagram and Twitter. And that is all my bullshit. What you guys doing this weekend? I'm getting my foot the hell up. Nice. Um, I actually don't really know. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I don't know all the days run together and I don't know when the weekend is. I don't think I have anything really planned. Cause uh, like we're having a, a spike here. So I'm going to try to keep it low key. Yeah, we are spiking pretty hard. Uh, I think in the vein of staying home. Uh, yeah, I think <coughs> That's unrelated. It's not unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Jackson and I are going to be watching The Mandalorian this weekend. You're going to fucking love it. I'm so excited. It's going to be good times. It, the so. Mandalorian. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. Whenever I say The Mandalorian is the best if you like westerns it is the best star wars fiction ever made i like westerns more than you would expect just because i was uh subjected to them a lot in grad school and so that did a lot for for me appreciating westerns so yeah i'm very excited very excited to watch it you're gonna so. love it you are especially the theme oh my god just listen to the theme and it, <laughs> oh it, it feels like those old spaghetti westerns it is oh, nice. fantastic. Oh, getting more excited by the minute. The weekend can't come fast <laughs> enough. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us this week. We appreciate your listenership more than you could possibly know. You guys are the reason we do this. Well, that and murder. So, yeah. <laughs> I just do it because I need an excuse to drink on a weeknight. <laughs> I love the well. Chrissy's like, oh, don't tell me about your foot. Ew. Anyway, they found the dude's nuts five feet away from his body, draped over the Christmas tree, and the intestines were wrapped around Santa's neck like a scarf. Okay. First of all, this case was not in any way gruesome, and Amber subjected me to 400 dead babies last week. So. Yes, I did. You would have been so proud, Scott. Oh, uh, I love you, Amber. <laughs> so, there is that. Second of all, there is both physical and time chronological distance between us and these murders that we talk about so that does help to buffer it when it does get gruesome scott i can practically see your house and this happened last week and also i don't have to hear about it nearly as many times as i had to hear about your foot today because you told me the story and then you talked about it on the tiny and then you were like let's start another let's episode. start it and do it again <laughs> So I, I don't have the repetition in such a short time frame that I'm like, I'm starting to get sick to my stomach. I actually texted Christy from the hospital going, there's so much blood. I've always wanted to say that. He did indeed. He did indeed. I told him uh, I was glad he's still kicking. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> 
Not what? in a literal sense, but in a metaphorical sense. One good punt and my toe would have gone through the field goal before the football would have. <laughs> On that note, if you've stuck around this long, God bless your soul. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, thank you for listening to our family words. <laughs> Bye. Platelets. By the <laughs> My sources this week are a lot. Uh, Blood and Ink, an international guide to fact-based crime literature by Albert Borowitz. Memoirs of Madame Lafarge by Marie, Marie Lafarge. Encyclopedia.com, Wikipedia.com. Tabea Tietz on Sci-Hi Blog. Joan Acachella on The New Yorker. Victorian Murder says a true history of 13 respectable French and English women at, accused of unspeakable crimes by Mary S. Hartman. An introduction to forensic geoscience by Elisa Bergslian. Jess Romeo on JSTOR Daily. Jose Ramon Bertamillo Sanchez on both ISIS, a journal of history of science society. I bet they changed the name of that and medical history and Martin Lynch, provincial medical and surgical journal and franceinfo.fr. My sources are the art of wikipedia.org, murderpedia.org and sci-hi.org. Uh, my sources this week are murderpedia.org, dailyjstore.org by Just Romeo and Romeo, however you say it, and the Vintage News by Tihana Radeska. Tihana Radeska. Tihana, <laughs> mi esposo no comprende mi amor por tu. Okay. Okay.